Well, good evening tonight. Uh, we're excited to be back together, and we're going to be finishing up our, what's essentially a mini-series on the church. Uh, basically, is what we're looking at tonight. And it's a series that we started a couple Sundays ago on Sunday morning. And you probably remember uh, that we opened the semester, and I encouraged you, you know, if I could just tell you one thing at the start of the semester, and you're, you're not going to remember anything else, or I'm only going to have one conversation with you, uh, what would I tell you? And the thing I would tell you would be to prioritize the local church. Make the local church a priority. And that's true for your entire life, for sure, and especially during these young adult years, or if you're in college, these collegiate years, because these are formative years for you. A lot's going on on campus, and a lot tempts you away from uh, the church. And, um, and so that was just my, my appeal that I made to you on Sunday a couple weeks ago. And for you Liberty students, uh, it was also super encouraging to me that the university is putting such an emphasis on the local church. Um, they did this last year, and uh, I was very pleased to see a convo completely dedicated to the priority of the, of the local church. And this past week, they, they did the same thing, and they were very clear that Liberty's not the church, and they were very clear in how they wanted their students involved in the church from day one of their LU experience. So just curious, how many of you were in that convocation? You know what I'm talking about. Okay, great. I thank the Lord for that, for that emphasis and for that push. But even with that, over the last two years, what I've always struggled with, what I continue to struggle with in these convocations, is there's not really any biblical counsel given on how to choose a church. Did you catch that, those of you who are in there? And when they, get, when they do happen to like give some offhanded advice on how to pick one, uh, the advice is very unhelpful. Okay? Very unhelpful. Let me just highlight one example from this year's combo and then help you think through it kind of by way of introduction to our sermon tonight, because it's relevant. At one point in the panel discussion, uh, several of the pastors were talking about how there are no perfect churches. And to that I say, amen. They were talking about the need to commit, to stick and stay at a church, to really invest in the relationships, not just bounce out when somebody sins against you. If it gets a little awkward, right? And to that I say, amen. You guys know where I'm going. Um, <laughs> but at one point, and probably for shock value, one of our dear brothers actually gave this advice. He said, you're not going to find a perfect church, so find a bad one and cultivate it. That's a direct quote. You're not going to find a perfect church, true, so find a bad one and cultivate it. Now, if I were to give him the benefit of the doubt, I, I think he was aiming at shock value, okay? And what he was implying is that you should be part of the solution in a church. You shouldn't just come and go. You shouldn't be looking for this perfect church that's going to meet all your needs necessarily. And he's, I think he's trying to say you should help make a church healthy as you work hard at these relationships, okay? That's the most charitable interpretation, But my question is, is that good advice? Yes or no? Okay, no. Some of you are like, I don't know. Some of this kind of sounds right. I don't know. Not sure. 
Well, let me put it this way. Is it wise for you to find a bad church or even an unhealthy church and seek to make it healthy by your involvement as a college student? No. The answer is no. Should you assume that you're God's solution to change that church? No. Well, why is that? Okay. What's, what's wrong with this advice? Let's think through this together. All right, number one, for starters, it's a sermon before the sermon. Number one, that kind of advice tempts you to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. We're using Paul's language from Romans 12.3. Tempts you to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. As a young adult, guess what you are? Young. Nothing wrong with that. You know, we, we all start out that way. You cannot help how old you are. But the hard reality is you're still on the front end of your Christian life. Even if you're on student leadership, you're still on the front end of your Christian life. Okay, You're still figuring out what it means to actually walk in Christian maturity. But you might say, don't let anyone look down on your youth. That verse was quoted, by the way, in, uh, in the panel. And hey, it's a true verse. But do you realize that that statement was given by Paul to his protege, Timothy, who was already affirmed as a church leader by a group of elders. And this man was in his late 30s, and he had spent over a decade in intensive mentorship with the Apostle Paul himself. It wasn't written to the 18-year-old that just moved out from home and has no ministry experience, okay? The reality is you do not have the wisdom it requires to know how to help an unhealthy church or a bad church get to a position of health. It's just not where you're at. And so that kind of advice tempts you toward pride. It sort of strokes your ego like, yeah, I am, I am going to be God's gift to change. And you're already prone to that because you're young and I get it. I'm still prone to that and I'm middle-aged. But you're prone to thinking more highly of yourself, that you're the answer to, a, to an unhealthy church. Or at least that kind of advice tempts you toward that. But not only that, not only is it bad for that reason, but it's also bad because it's very dangerous advice. If a church is unhealthy, or if a church is bad, to use his words, do you know what that means? You know what that means if a church is unhealthy or if a church is bad? It means Satan's all over that church. He has a foothold there. Usually, unhealthy churches are full of relational conflict that's gone on, and it's gone on unresolved. So you know what I'm talking about? That's just like one evidence of an unhealthy church, and it's almost always there. And if that's happening, conflict that's gone unresolved, according to Paul in Ephesians 4.27, Satan has an opportunity. He has a foothold in that church. He's deceived a lot of folks, likely even at the leadership level. And with you being on the immature side, it means he's a lot smarter than you are. And Satan is incredibly cunning, and he can even deceive the wisest among us. And so if you run to an unhealthy church thinking that you're the solution, you're going to get waylaid. It is a dangerous situation at best. That's best case scenario. 
So just to drive this home, okay? You guys know I have kids. I have a six-year-old son, and his name is Colin, if you don't know. Colin's a sweet boy. We like to think he's advanced for his, for his age, as every parent does. But imagine if, up the street, there were a group of teenage boys, and when we drove past these guys, they looked like a rough crowd, right? One of them got a cigarette hanging in his mouth, you know. They're kind of like hitting each other. We drive by, windows are down, they're, they're, they're cursing at each other. We're thinking, okay, rough dudes. Now, imagine if I said, hey, Colin, you know what? These dudes are pretty bad. I think they need your influence. <laughs> Here's what you should do. I know that they are a lot older than you and that they're probably involved in a lot of stuff you don't even understand. That's a cigarette, by the way. It's got nicotine in it and not good for you. Just, if, they ask you if they tell you to t- take a puff, don't do it. You know, Dad, what's a, what's a cigarette? You know? Why don't you go up to those guys and try to turn them into a good group of guys? Good advice or bad advice? That's horrific advice. Why? Because it's extremely dangerous for my son. Now, maybe one day he'll be mature enough to go mix it up with those guys or guys similar. I'm going to be training him to that, right? I'm going to, I'm going to tell him one day, hey, Colin, I know you're a little bit younger than them, but don't let them look down on you. Like, you, we've trained you. You've got convictions. Go stand, right? But today is not that day. He is six. He's not mature enough. It is dangerous. So you get the point. Now, that's not to say we don't have a burden for unhealthy churches. We desperately do. And you're going to hear more about that tonight. We have a burden even for bad churches. We desperately want to help them. We want to see them repent. We want to see them return to health. But that is a tough assignment. It takes a seasoned leader to come into a situation like that and know how to turn that ship around with wisdom. It takes time. It takes years, actually. And there will be a lot of pain in the process. So please do not take that pastor's advice. Liberty students and anybody else who is listening in on that. Please don't find a bad church and think that you're going to be the answer. Okay? I was just, we had to get that out there. Okay? Here's the advice you should have been given. Find the healthiest church you can, according to Scripture. Join it, learn from it, serve it, and grow to maturity in it. Right? That's the advice that they should have given then you might consider being part of a revitalization team later. You've got some experience. Or you're with a team of people, and you can come underneath a faithful shepherd in that project. So this little mini-series is our, is our crash course attempt to show you some biblical indicators of what the Scriptures lay out. There will be some evidences of health in a, in a church. And this, again, that's according to Scripture and not, and not you. So, so many people, we talked about last week, bring their own ideas of what they think church is or should be or should be important, what's important to them, and they bring that to the table, and they don't really even ask the question, what's important to Christ? What's he actually said in his word? And again, this isn't a comprehensive study. It's just it's low-hanging fruit. It's stuff you could see on a website. Uh, it's stuff you could find out by asking a few of the right questions. That's kind of what we're at. So we started that last time. We looked at eight indicators of health. 
We looked at the first four of them on Thursday last week. We, looked, we saw the first one was what we described as expository preaching. Right? The first way you can tell a church is healthy is how her leaders handle the Scriptures. First place you want to look is the pulpit, the preaching. Healthy church won't play fast and loose with the Scriptures. They won't basically just say what they want and then sprinkle some Bible verses in. An indicator of health is when the preaching is careful with the Scripture. They're careful to explain to you what a passage means in context. That's this expositional word, expository, explanatory, if you will. They're careful to explain what it means to you, and they're careful to apply it to your life. And that is an indicator of health. And that's what we're talking about when we say expository preaching, preaching that exposits or explains the text and applies it to your life. And usually, this kind of preaching won't just skip around to random verses each week. It won't bop around to the the hottest topics. Pastors that have these convictions will preach through books of the Bible on a consistent basis. Doesn't mean they won't do topical stuff, but they, they preach predominantly through books of the Bible. So if you see a church that's growing in their understanding of Scripture, because their leaders are explaining it to them, and you see their lives are being transformed as a result over time, that's how you know, okay, church is probably healthy. That's where you want to be. All right, that was number one last week. Number two, another way you can tell that a church is healthy is, or isn't healthy is by what she sings. A healthy church won't sing songs just because they're trendy or because they're emotionally moving. But they're going to sing songs because they're profoundly truthful. So we just describe this as truthful singing as our second mark, our second indicator. A healthy church knows that the singing is not just aimed at God. It is. But it's aimed at one another. It's directed toward each other, Colossians 3.16. It helps us teach each other about God. So we want to make sure that the songs we're singing are accurate and true. And a church that's careful and thoughtful about what she sings is likely, likely a healthy church. So that was our second indicator. Our third one was what we described as qualified elders. Another place that you want to look when you're trying to gauge the health of a congregation is in its leadership. And specifically, you're looking for elders who are qualified. And again, if you're new, elder is just another term for pastor, leader of a church. And we saw last time that a a healthy church are going to have multiple elders, not just one guy at the top who's making all the decisions and running the show. They're going to have multiple elders. Those elders are going to be mature, seasoned men who consistently resemble Jesus, what they say and their attitudes, what they do. And they're going to teach you, yes, but not only will they teach, but they're going to be involved in your life. They're going to work hard to know you, to pray for you, to help you grow. And that's a qualified elder, according to Scripture. And a church that has these qualified elders, a church is thinking about these things and appointing men like this, that's going to be a healthy church. All right. And the fourth quality we looked at last week was something we described as biblical counseling. We wrapped up last time by looking at a fourth evidence of health, which has to do with how a church helps people who are enslaved in sin. Galatians 6.1. How does the church help people who are enslaved in sin? You want to be looking at that. A healthy church will move toward people who are struggling. Okay, They'll move toward people. They'll take responsibility for struggling people. They won't outsource them. 
They'll take responsibility for struggling people, and they're going to seek to counsel them with God's Word alone. We describe this as biblical counseling. That means a healthy church is going to reject any worldly wisdom that tries to help people overcome sin apart from Scripture. They won't mix or integrate secular psychological assessments with biblical truth. And so a healthy church is going to be a church that depends on the Spirit to work through His Word to transform His people, just like Jesus said would happen in John 8. You will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. Free from sin. All right, now take a deep breath because that was all review. Okay? We're going to switch gears here and uh, finish up the list tonight. We're going to pick it up, pick it back up with number five. And we can say this a healthy church will have some form of committed church membership. All right, a healthy church is going to have some form of committed membership. Now, as soon as I say that, I need to define what I mean by this by this description here. Lots of organizations have memberships, don't they? The YMCA has membership, right? And go swim. Even unhealthy churches can have church membership. So how is this a how is this a, a an indicator of health? Well, notice my language in, in the title. It didn't just say church membership, but it said committed membership. A mark of a healthy church is not just membership, but, but a, a membership that has commitment attached to it. What do I mean by that? Well, to, be a, to be a mark of health, church membership or joining a particular church must be viewed as an act of commitment. Does that make sense? It must be viewed as an act of commitment. Or if we use the language of Acts 2, it's an outworking of our devotion to each other. It's the fruit of love. It's a way of saying that out of all the churches in this area, I'm choosing this one to commit to it. I'm choosing these leaders to submit to. I'm choosing these particular believers that are around me to come alongside and serve and love and forgive and all the, all the other things. I'm choosing this particular ministry to pour my time and my resources into. It doesn't mean you don't value the wider universal church or have relationships beyond your church. You certainly do. It just means you're demonstrating that you value the church and you value the universal church by your commitment to a particular group, to a particular assembly, and then you're committing to that assembly. You're saying, essentially, I'm going to be devoted to these saints right here. So the last time we were together, we looked at Acts 2.42, and we'll do that again this morning, or this evening. I get my time's right. Uh, we're going to start out in Acts 2.42. I think I had this up for you on the screen as well. And if you remember the context of this passage, <clears throat> the context here, we're, we're given a description of the very first church. These are the first converts, really, in mass. Uh, the first converts here to Christ, that have come from the apostolic preaching. Very first church. And Luke, in the narrative, has given us some indicators of what, what this church was characterized by. And we saw last time, in, in verse 42, that this, these saints, these newly indwelt, spirit-filled saints, 
were immediately devoted to what? What we saw last time. The apostles' teaching, right? The apostles' teaching. They were immediately devoted to that. But notice what else it says they were devoted to in Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, yes, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all who believed, we skipped a verse, all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So beyond the teaching, in verse 42, what does it say that they were devoted to? Luke gives us three more things. He says the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And all three of these are aspects, you could think of these as aspects of their overall commitment to each other. Okay? Their devotion to each other. So let's talk about each one of these. When it says they're devoted to the fellowship, what does that mean? It means they were devoted to, you could, you could translate this as sharing. They were devoted to sharing with each other. And the, and the context is going to flesh this out. They shared their lives, their possessions with each other, right, in this, in this paragraph. This says breaking of bread. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. And this is one way they did this, which means they shared their food with each other at a minimum. It likely means communion as well, but at a minimum it means they're, they're sharing food. We get a clear picture of this fellowship and the breaking of bread in the next verse. Luke says they like being together. They like spending time together each day. They sold their possessions. They shared the proceeds with those in need. They had each other for, meal, had each other over for meals in their homes, and they did it joyfully. This is a sweet community of love, and it's produced by the Spirit. But back in verse 42, he also says they were devoted to a third thing here. They were devoted to prayer, or the prayers. And that just means they were interceding for each other. They're praying for each other. They were, they were devoted to their praying for their growth, praying for their needs, praying for the advancement of the gospel. As later chapters in Acts show us, they, Acts actually records some of those prayers that the church prayed. But the point here is that a healthy church is a church that is devoted to each other. It's the only point I'm trying to make, right? Or that Luke's trying to make. Is that they were devoted to each other. They look around and they say, I'm committed to this group. These 5,000, 3,000 of us that joined, 5,000 later, you're just like, we're, we're committed. It's a new thing. We're the church in Jerusalem, and we're committed to each other. And over in Romans 12, Paul really spells out what this commitment, this devotion looks like in real time. So you can go ahead and turn over to Romans 12. Romans chapter 12, he, he kind of gives us some, a real-time fleshing out of this, what this devotion to each other looks like. And he starts by saying we should serve each other. We should use our gifts to serve each other. It's what he starts, he starts this out in verse 3. He says, for the, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, there's what we alluded to earlier, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, 
So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So he's essentially saying, let us serve each other. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. What's his point? His point is we should be using our gifts to serve each other in, in the body. That's, that's one of these, the, the expressions of this devotion. That means that members of a healthy church will be willing to set aside their own preferences and desires to serve the needs of those around them in the body. They're going to jump at the opportunity to meet needs. Why? Because they recognize the privilege of being graced with gifts to build up the body. A healthy church is going to see this. They're going to be devoted to serving. Okay? Paul also says that we should be devoted to loving each other or, to, or, or that this devotion will spill out in love. In verse 9, he says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection. In a healthy church, people won't be two-faced. Their love's going to be genuine. Okay? They're not going to tell you what you just want to hear. Because it flatters you and it makes you feel nice about yourself. That's not being genuine in love. That means they're going to speak graciously, truthfully, and sincerely to you. And this kind of, war- this kind of love is going to be warm. It's going to be a, a kind of a family-type love. Or as Paul says here, a brotherly affection. But the point is just, if we're committed to each other, we're going to love each other. He also says we should honor each other. Look at, the, look at the last part of that verse. Verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor. I think I have the wrong verse up there. It's just still, still in verse 10. He says we should honor each other and outdo, each, outdo one another in honoring, honoring each other. This means that a healthy church member will not be demeaning or rude to another church member. But they're going to strive to magnify the strengths of those around them. They're going to speak well of them to others. They're honoring their fellow church member. That's what a healthy church does. He also tells us to meet needs and to be hospitable to each other. So we could just say to provide for each other. Verse 13. says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This means a healthy church is going to have open homes. They're going to have open lives where people know each other, where people are known, where needs and burdens come out. It's not all happening on Sunday, in other words. It's happening in the homes and in the lives of, of those that are, as they're opening themselves up and they're, they're providing for one another. And finally, he tells us in this, just right here in Romans 12, that we need to be reconciling. We need to live in harmony with each other. Verse 16, he says, Live in harmony with one another, and don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. He's saying, be humble, live in harmony. And you think harmony, ah, that sounds so nice, right? Harmony. But (laughs) it's tough, hard to achieve, right? Healthy church members understand that harmony comes as we humble ourselves. As we seek forgiveness when we wrong other people. As we extend the forgiveness of Christ to other church members who have wronged us. 
And see, a healthy church is not void of sin. Okay? A healthy church is it just, it's not void of sin. It just pursues the harmony that comes from reconciling after we've sinned. Okay? So again, I just want to root what this committed membership looks like in real time in Romans 12 for you. And an indicator of health is when a church has an emphasis on this kind of commitment to each other, right? This kind of commitment in membership. So just listen, if you go into a church and they cater to you, right? They treat you like a customer. They don't ever ask you to commit to anything. They don't want to like, they don't want to ask too much of you, right? Like they don't want to, they don't want to lose you. They flatter you. That's not a good sign. If you can go into a church and float and sort of drift in and out with very little to no commitment, if nobody's like, hey, why don't you come to the membership class? Like, what's going on? If that, just, if that never happens, then there's a problem. The culture of a healthy church should be one of commitment, one of what we like to call vibrant body life, where the members really do love each other and they really do take responsibility for each other's growth in Christ. And this is coming from the fact that Christ is radically committed to us. We can't outcommit ourselves, right? That we can't like outcommit Christ. Like, he is so He is so committed to us. And he says, I want you to mimic me. I want you to pay that forward. And it's hard at times, yeah, but th- this is what he's called us to, and this is an evidence of a healthy church. So when you visit a church, take note of its membership process, right? Ask about it. Do the people there seem to value the membership? Do they encourage you to commit to each other? Why or why not? Do leaders take responsibility to shepherd your souls in a commit, commitment to you? Do the congregation, do, they, do the members seem committed to each other in love? These are good questions to be asking yourself as you come out of a church service. Because this kind of committed membership is an evidence of health in a, in a local church. All right? So that was number five. Okay, well, moving on, this one's not as fun to talk about, but it's really, really good indicator of health, and that's church discipline. Church discipline. You might be thinking, man, I, you know, I don't know Clay, but now I know he's crazy, right? <clears throat> Talking about church discipline as a, member, as, a, as a mark of health, an indicator of health. You might hear that and you might think, this sounds harsh or cruel, or you might have been a part of a church that like really abused this process. And it might sound puritanical to you. It might sound legalistic at some, at some level. And it certainly can be if it's abused. But it surprises people when they hear that Christ actually commanded the church to deal with people who refuse to repent of their sin. Like, that's a command from Christ. We don't have an option. If we're saying we believe the Scriptures, then we that we must at some level practice or discipline. Turn over to Matthew 18. I want you to see this, because this is often not talked about. And because it's awkward, and the churches are kind of treating you like a customer, and they don't want to, they don't want to push you away. But this is, this is clear in Scripture, and it's actually very, very healthy for a local congregation. Matthew 18 have it on the screen here as well, starting in verse 15. 
the Lord says, if, if your brother sins against you, you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. That's the goal, right? But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So that's the second step. If he doesn't listen to you, take two or three more. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, the the smaller circle, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What's he saying? He's saying to somebody sinning, you go to them, you keep the circle tight, you go to them, you talk to them about their sin. Graciously, you know, there's a lot of principles there that we're not talking about right now. <laughs> How to do that in a productive, humble way. Um, but you, 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 you keep the circle small. That's the goal. And if they won't listen to that, if they're, they're refusing to repent, they're hardening their heart, they're dialing down, then the, the pressure gets greater. You take a couple more, you come to it, there's more pressure, more pleading, please hear. If that doesn't happen, it goes to the church, kind of the greatest degree of pressure, And if the church, if they continue hardening their heart, you excommunicate. You let them be to you as a tax collector and a Gentile, meaning a non-Christian. But the goal throughout this process is redemption and restoration. That's the goal. At every step. Even in the last step. Paul describes it as handing them over to Satan so they learn not to blaspheme. Right? And they come back. The goal is to win our brother or sister back from a pattern of unrepentant sin. And that's because unrepentant sin will destroy someone. It's like warning somebody not to drink poison. Nobody would say, that's puritanical. Like, that's, that's legalistic. It's like, no, I want you to live. I don't want you to die. And so I'm going to put my relationship with you on the line to try to rescue you from that, those dire consequences. It would be unloving not to. Make sense? The same is true in the church. We love each other enough to move toward each other in love, to move toward each other in humility, to help each other follow Christ. But what happens if someone refuses to repent of sin? Well, Jesus says you continue to ratchet up that pressure like we talked about. First with a few calling him to repentance, then the whole church calling him to repentance. And if they still refuse to repent after a period where the church pursues, Jesus said we should treat them like an unbeliever and we should put them out of the church. And why is that? Because functionally, functionally they are acting like an unbeliever because they're refusing to repent and follow their Lord. Jesus does not say, he does not say to discipline people who are trying to repent. Who are struggling to repent. He says we are to discipline those who refuse to repent. It's a distinction there, massive distinction. Now, in most cases, speaking practically here, this is a very slow process. A lot of shepherding care a lot of love, a lot of patience, even with the people that are hardening their hearts. 
Sometimes it can take a year or more of working with an individual. Just to give you an idea, we, well, we, worked, we worked with an individual one time who got sent to us from a sister church with the recommendation, because he was originally a member here, with the recommendation that we discipline him out of the church. And we worked with that guy for over a year. Over a year. We had to discipline him out, but that just gives you an idea of the, the patience that I think a healthy church moves, the slowness to move in this process. Now, there are some instances where you have to move fast. You see that in Scripture as well. And again, this is not a whole teaching on church discipline alone, so I've got I to be brief in my comments, okay? But there are certain circumstances where you move quickly. But thankfully, this third stage, like we're looking at here, this, this church discipline is rare at TBC. It has happened on a handful of occasions in the last few years, but it's a, it's a grieving time. It's really sobering. It induces fear, which is a good thing. But the point is, a healthy church will love you enough to follow Christ's commands here in seeking you to, get to, 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 to repent of habitual sin. Sin that will wreck you. Sin that will hurt others. Sin that will ultimately reflect poorly on Christ. And so, what that means then is when you're visiting a church, and I know that sounds weird, um, when you're visiting a church, check into whether or not it exercises church discipline. You can rule out a lot of, a lot of churches. If you think practically, you're looking at this list, you can just start with number six. And you can rule out a whole bunch of churches almost by, from the get-go. Because if they will not practice church discipline, you can know that it's not really that committed to the body, to the membership. It's like parents who refuse to discipline their children. You think, oh, that sounds so loving. Until you see those kids. And then it's like, well, that's not loving at all. Like, you're, you're, it's, it's a detriment to the child to not train and discipline the children. And so it's a detriment to the congregation if, if the church is not willing to, to disciple and practice loving church discipline. Look at the constitution of the church. Do they have a policy for how to conduct it? Is it biblical? Then maybe ask a long-term member, have you actually done this? What was it like? Have you been able to restore anybody? And that is a glorious process when that happens. We might be on the, on the cusp of a restoration right now as we speak. So, if a church does do this discipline, instead of being unloving, that church is actually truly loving. They fear Christ more than they fear you which is huge. They're willing to do the hard thing for the sake of the sheep. And that's an evidence of health. Now, it should be clear at this point that a healthy church is a maturing church. It's a church where its members are growing to be more and more like Christ. Slow? Yeah. Imperfect? Yeah. But they're making progress. And our immediate aim is to grow the members as, that God's entrusted to us. And it, our, our goal as shepherds is to grow them to full maturity. But maturity is not an end in itself. Do you hear me? Maturity is not an end in itself. When the saints become mature, what happens? 
They start replicating. Yeah, they start teaching others. They, the same is true at a corporate level in the church. In other words, a healthy church won't just be focused on itself. The internal growth will overflow into replication. So that brings us to our seventh indicator of health. If a church is healthy, there will be an emphasis on leadership training. Leadership training. Number seven. Now again, if you're new, this might surprise you that I said leadership training instead of evangelism or missions. Probably where your mind was going. That's because a lot of churches, um, healthy and unhealthy churches, they have missions programs, right? That's not an anomaly. Like it, it, lots of people have missions programs. Lots of people have evangelism programs. They have, they have community outreaches. That doesn't really necessarily tell you if a church is healthy or not. But what's often missing and what might be more of a telltale sign is this emphasis on identifying, training, and testing future leaders. Think this through with me. All right, let's think about our Lord. Early on in his ministry, Jesus put the focus on the need for leaders. In Luke 10, Jesus makes plain that the problem is not that we don't have anything to harvest. Right? He puts the problem where? On a lack of laborers. He said in Luke 10, 2, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus himself had a burden for more leaders, leaders who could bring in this harvest of souls. But he didn't just long and pray for more leaders, as important as that is. He did those things. He commanded us to pray and long for them. But he actively took steps to select and train these leaders. He proactively invested in these men. It's been said of the Lord Jesus that men are the method. Men are the method. It's helpful, memorable. What does that mean? Meaning Christ did not set up an outreach program. He didn't set up a missions organization to transform the world. What did he do? He invested in 12 dudes, right? And three intensively. He invested deeply in people, in these 12 individuals specifically. He taught them, yes, but they lived with him. They traveled with him. He modeled his life to them. He slowly involved them in ministry. He gave them more and more responsibility. And that's to say he gave himself to leadership training. Our Lord. And the apple didn't fall far, far from the tree. The apostles did the same thing. Paul devoted himself to developing other leaders around him, to mentoring them, deploying them for more ministry. He depended heavily on a team approach to ministry. In Acts chapter 16, he picks up Timothy, and for over a decade, he invests deeply in that man. And at the end of Paul's life, he charged Timothy to continue the process of leadership training in the church. In 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, 
He said, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So it's clear that one of the tasks facing Timothy was to make sure he was actively identifying faithful men. Right? And one of his tasks is not just to identify these men, but entrust to them what Paul had taught him. And the goal is so that they would disseminate that teaching to others, so that they would continue passing it on to others. And that means then that a healthy church is going to recognize it's their responsibility to identify and train future leaders. It's not the responsibility of an outside institution. It's not the responsibility of a seminary. It's the responsibility of the elders and the congregation of a local church. To find faithful men, God's raising up, identify those men, invest in those men. So when you go into a church, look around to see if it's happening in that church. Do the current elders... The current pastors, do they spend time with younger faithful men to equip them for ministry, specifically? Are these men apprenticed in the church? Are they vetted by the congregation? If a church is healthy, a telltale sign is that the Lord begins to raise up a surplus of leaders because he intends to send those laborers out into his harvest. Now, one practical way we do that here at at TBC is beyond just identifying and then personally apprenticing these men, you know, like as the elders, as pastors, bring these guys alongside. We've also partnered with the Expositor Seminary. It is an institution. It's right here in our church. And now, and I'm not saying that every church has to or even needs to have a seminary. Many churches can't, you know. That's not what I'm saying. But here, the Lord's graced us with this partnership. And we view expositors as assisting us, the church, in really training up these future pastors, missionaries, and helping us train them right here in the context of the church. That's our responsibility. And that's the program that I went through, along with the guys like Tim Moshera, Matt Sinclair, guys you probably already know. And it was gold. So if you're thinking about training, that's worth a conversation. But whether a church has a seminary or not, a healthy church is going to be devoted in one way or another to training leaders. They're going to take responsibility. Even if they have to send their guys away for a season to some outside institution, they're going to be keeping track of those guys, making sure those guys are doing well because they're their guys. Paul didn't send Timothy to Jerusalem to go train there. He brought him with him. He's with him consistently. Now, it doesn't stop there with the the training, as important as that is. A final evidence of health in the life of a church is when it has an emphasis on what I'm calling church replication. Church replication. Again, I'm I'm trying to choose my language carefully here. And uh, I know this is not like, we don't say this all the time, like church replication, like like a buzzword. It's kind of hard to say, actually. Um, my point here is that an indicator of a healthy church is not just emissions generically, whatever that might mean. 
healthy and unhealthy churches, like I said, will have missions programs, and it might mean very different things. But when a church is focused strategically on replicating other healthy churches, that's the idea here, when that's its explicit goal, is we want to see other healthy churches replicate, that's likely an indicator of health. And in a church, this passion for replication might look like a few things here, okay? These might be more buzzwords that you're used to. Planting churches, right? It might look like that. It might look like planting new churches. And, it, and these churches are planted with a particular heartbeat, right, for thinking about the nations, the unreached, those who have not yet heard the gospel. doesn't mean you don't plant churches in neighboring cities, because those people need the gospel too. But there is a particular heartbeat of a, a marching toward these, these folks who have not heard the gospel, the nations who have not yet bowed the knee to Christ. And we see this uh, example of church planting in Acts, so I just put the book of Acts as your, as your reference there. Um, if you want a test case study, you can take the, the, the study of Antioch in Acts 11 and Acts 13. In Acts 11... The gospel reaches Antioch, and a church is planted. So it's like kind of a new, new, new birth there. Then it's, it's just the Lord's really blessing that work, and so Barnabas comes down, he sees what's going on, and he's like, I need Saul or Paul. And so he goes and gets Paul, brings him in, and they teach for over a year. They teach them intensively. And they're so radical that that's the first place that anybody ever started calling people Christian. Than Antioch, that's what Luke tells us. Meaning, they took on the name Little Christs. You know, like they're so they're so Christ-like. Um, that's how they became known as Christians. And the next time we see this church mentioned, so that's Acts eleven. Next time we see this church mentioned is in Acts thirteen. And the next time we see it, it's full of a surplus of teachers, of leaders. So it's like it's following the progression. It went plant strengthening by Paul, you know, they start growing to maturity, and then all of a sudden, the next time you see them in Acts 13, they've got a bunch of leaders. There's a surplus of teachers. And out of this surplus, then, the Lord sends Paul and Barnabas to go plant more churches in the empire. In chapters 13 and 14, they go to city after city. They preach the gospel. They make a bunch of people mad, but there are some converts people that really matter, trying to kill them. They make converts. They gather those converts into local churches, and then they establish elders. They appoint elders in those, those churches, leaders. And that church planting ministry continues throughout Acts as a model for the churches to follow today. So that means a healthy church will be focused on this same kind of church planting replication. Healthy churches will be willing not just to send a leader, but also to sacrifice its resources and even some of its own members to relocate to this needed area. And if they're not able to send their own for whatever reason, maybe they don't have a guy to send or they don't have the resources to send, they're willing to partner with other missionaries who are like-minded, with other church planting folks, and they're going to have an eye toward the nations, toward those who have never heard. And so when you visit a church, don't just look, are they, do they like missions? Like, look specifically. Like, what are they doing? Are they modeling their missions program after the book of Acts? 
for commitment to planting churches, planting healthy churches. All right, so that's one way that this church replication can take place by planting new churches. But there's another way of replicating. And that is what we talked about at the beginning. We could, we could call it revitalizing unhealthy churches. Another way that church replication happens is when you kind of put the car in reverse and you go back and you take an unhealthy church and you start revitalizing it toward health. And we see actually several examples of this in the New Testament in terms of the need for this. There's several churches or pictures that are in decline or in need of revitalization. One good example, sad example, but good example of this is the church in Sardis described in the book of Revelation, chapter 3. It would be wild for the Lord to give us an assessment of our church. I often think about that when I come in on Sunday. And I think, like, the Lord of the church is walking around our ministries. He's looking. What would he say? And the Lord assesses his church, this church in Sardis, with a chilling statement. He says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And he goes on to call this church to wake up and to repent. But then he makes clear that there are are still some faithful believers in that church. And isn't that a description of every church revitalization? You got a remnant of a couple believers in a a pocket of faithfulness in the midst of a lot of unfaithfulness, you know? But the point being is that there's, there's examples of this need in the scriptures. You won't have to look very far. There's a need of reviving or of coming back to life is, is using Jesus' own metaphor here. You have appearance of being alive, but you're dead. And in a town like ours where unhealthy churches abound, there are a lot of opportunities for this revitalizing work. Now, churches may not be open to the revitalizing work. They might be thinking they're alive, but they're actually dead, right? But still, there's an opportunity there. And like we said at the beginning of this message, it is hard work. It takes time. It takes much patience. It often involves a lot of heartache. But it is a worthy mission. And part of this passion to see churches reproduce. If an unhealthy church can be nursed back to health, think about the implications of that. She can become another vibrant testimony to the wisdom of God in her community, and she herself can become a replicator an agent of change, even to other churches. That means then that a a church may also have an equal burden to see this revitalization ministry taking place. And it might send out some of its men, perhaps even teams of its men, to do this necessary work. And that, too, is a sign of health in a congregation, when there's a burden for that in the midst of a congregation. All right, so I think that's enough. There's, there's a lot more we can talk about. We're going to call it. 
as we walk away from this, I don't want you to think that these are the only biblical marks of a healthy church, okay? Again, I'm just giving you the low-hanging fruit, stuff you can look at on a website, stuff you can walk in and kind of like look around and see, stuff you can talk to your friends about. It's, it's pretty easy. There's a lot of biblical underpinnings to all this that we didn't even get to. We didn't even talk about other things that have been central to the church since its inception, like, like the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We didn't even talk about that. Um, but even though this isn't exhaustive, I think these evidences are a very good start. They're very good indicators of health, kind of like a good pulse to know a church is alive. And they're going to help you look for the right kinds of things, ask the right kinds of questions when you're looking for a church so that you can make a biblically informed decision, so you can help your friends make a biblically informed decision. That's a decision that's rooted in Scripture first and not just their preferences, right? And so, the takeaway for tonight, my concluding encouragement to you is find a church, any church that's growing in health, and commit yourself to it. Don't find a bad one and try to, and try to turn it around. Find the healthiest one you can, embed yourself there, Commit to it, join it, love it, learn from it, grow in it, mature up in it, and it'll be life for your soul. It'll be one of the wisest decisions you'll make in college, and then you might find yourself being part of a team in a couple years to be sent out to replicate. All right? Let's pray. Father, we are just so thankful every time we open your word for the clarity, for how well you shepherd us, and I pray that um, I just look around, and most of these folks are our people. This is review for them. And I pray that you just continue to, to deepen their convictions, help them to um, sharpen their convictions in these areas so that they can humbly and yet winsomely talk to their friends about these things. And I pray if there's folks here that are new, that are hearing this for the first time, or um, that you would just open their eyes to see from the Scriptures what these marks of health are, and just move them to make a biblical decision um, of, a, of a church that's healthy in Lynchburg to be involved in, and that you would just produce immense fruit from that decision uh, over the next few years. And we pray it in Jesus' name.